Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Alright, so, puzzle boxes. Puzzle boxes. Puzzle boxes. Am I, alright, I'm saying this, I'm, I'm going to say this from the perspective of somebody who actually solved a Rubik's Cube when I was a kid, but it's my opinion that people who not only own Rubik's Cubes but solve them tend to be real assholes about, like, I solved a Rubik's Cube. I put my colors together like I'm still in kindergarten. Like, have you ever walked in on, like, like in somebody's office and they've got their fucking solved Rubik's Cube on, like, a platform or, like, a stand? Like, they're showing it off like a fucking trophy? Okay. Like, <laughs> it, can't, isn't that, like... Can't you fake that though? Because yeah. when you when you buy a Rubik's cube, it comes solved. Yeah, it like you're. I know you're supposed to mix it up and whatever, but I mean, if you were really a pretentious asshole, but didn't want <laughs> didn't want to put in the labor, you just buy yourself a Rubik's cube and just set it on your desk and be like, "Look what I did." I mean, if you're How lying about know? solving a Rubik's cube, you're a pretty pathetic human being. <laughs> Like I, you know, I think it would be hilarious to see the solved Rubik's Cube on someone's desk and just come in and fuck it up for them. <laughs> well, you solved it once. Go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> That's why. All right. I want, I want the Lamar Sham box. I, you, you don't? I do. Because I want to go. I want the Lamar Sham box and I want to go to a Rubik's Cube convention. And I want to be around these pretentious assholes who are like, I solved a Rubik's Cube. And I'm like, bitch, I solved the Lamarshan box. Now the Cenobites are going to come and kill you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, but they wouldn't come and kill them. They would come and kill you. Well, they'd probably you just can, kill you, everybody. If you, no, if you, they only come after the person who solves well, yeah, the box. True. Ooh, then I should that, get, That's why I'm saying then, you don't want, you gift it to someone yeah, else. Yeah, then you gift the, Gift it to yeah, the asshole. Then, yeah, then we get the Lamarshan box go. to the Rubik's Cube person and be like, yeah, you solved the Rubik's Cube. Why don't you solve this one? Exactly. That'd be yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My grandfather had a puzzle box. It was, it was not a Lamarshan box. It, it was just a puzzle box. <laughs> And, uh, and I, I used to spend a lot of time, you know, like pulling it apart because you have to, you have to do like a whole bunch of different steps in order to open it. And I was always disappointed because he kept nothing in it. It was, it was purely decorative. And I was like, what is even the point of having a puzzle box if you're not going <laughs> to, if you're not going to fucking hide something in the puzzle box? <laughs> I, I, I just think about what would Pinhead's reaction be to one of those Rubik's Cube people? Like, I solved the Rubik's Cube and, and Pinhead. I mean, I can just hear him like, well, I, save your tears. I so, think the real question is, <laughs> is more like, what would that guy's Cenobite profession be? Because, you know. <laughs> you don't think it'd be Pinhead coming after him? Well, no, I think, I think the, that Pinhead would come after him because that's apparently his job. But... <laughs> I, what I'm saying is like, you know, in, we learn in Hellraiser 2 that when you're dragged into whatever this weird Cenobite hell is, you're, and you're attacked by the weird tentacle box or whatever in hell and transformed into a Cenobite, like, like you're, you're, you're changed according to whatever weird predilection you had back in life, right? 
Dude. So, so what did the the Rubik's cube assholes become when they're taken in, into hell? <laughs> they become Rubik's cubes. That'd be, the dude would be like, he'd be like, but I solved a Rubik's cube, and Pinhead would be like, in hell, you are the Rubik's cube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just uh, crank his arms into weird angles and stuff. He becomes a contortionist. Um, <laughs> hey, everybody! Welcome to Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits. I'm Jeremy. I'm Trevor. And today, guess what? We're talking about the uh, the benefits of Mr. Rogers' imagination lane. No, I'm just kidding. We're talking about um, Clive Barker's Hellraiser books and stories. You, so, you really stumbled through that I intro. I <laughs> did really stumble through that intro. Clive Barker, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Clive Barker. We're so I think what I want to what I want to start off with, what I kind of want to start doing is talking a little bit about why these works are important that we're choosing. Um, so I, uh, I want to say this. So, so why is Clive Barker important? Um, and why did we want to talk about him today? And my idea is this, like horror in the, the mid 20th century was pretty standard stuff. We've been inundated with ghosts and werewolves. Um, William Peter Blatty's exorcist was a novel idea. Um, and it was based on a rumored exorcism that took place in the 1940s. But it still came at us from this like purely Christian theological perspective, right? Um, well, I, I think to challenge that just a little bit, right? I, what, we, what we're really talking about with, with Barker is like the evolution of certain tropes or certain assumptions about horror. Because that's really what he does, right? He takes common tropes or he takes ideas that have been around for a long time and kind of spins them into this new area of excess and, and i think that's really right. really interesting from the to your point about the christian perspective right i i think most of what we understand as a, at least american christians or or even to a certain extent maybe like a european christian right it really our sense of christianity our sense of of christian theology doesn't even necessarily come from the bible or biblical texts but from other authors who have innovated on the ideas taught in theological seminary or taught through theological study you know, he kind of takes these, uh, or they, they take these ideas and, and run with them, innovate upon them. And then they, they take on this, I don't know, this, this, uh, kind of fresh luster for a lot of people. They spread through popular consciousness to the point that we can't necessarily discern between what is original and what is derivative. So, so for example, right, I, I'm thinking of John Milton in paradise lost right our whole concept of of satan and uh lucifer and the the conflict between a heavenly host and um and a satanic being or you know this this grand enemy comes from like john milton we we don't have I would, I would probably argue Milton and Dante Alighieri. Oh, well, uh, uh, but Dante, hell, Dante very, yes, his vision of hell is the, the, the other side of this, this coin. But Dante never really wrote about, about Satan or, or some kind of divine enemy, right? Like Dante was still very much grabbing yeah. hold of these other, uh, 
theological ideas from uh, uh, the Greek and Roman pantheon yeah. and blending them with, with Christianity. So our idea of hell uh, really is, is far more, I think, represented in, in Dante's work. And, and then, of course, Dante's work, I think, went on to influence a lot of artists yeah. that have crafted similar visions of hell to to inferno i mean it was it was like the blockbuster kind of epic but even story. by the 20th century all of these ideas are still very very old like they're very oh absolutely like when blatty writes in first the exorcist and then they do the movie that vision of demonic possession feels it's it's novel at the time but it also is based on literature that has been pushed as biblical truth for like years and years and years yeah. so that's what made it scary for some people well, I, I think it also What's, made it scary because to to blatty's credit he he set everything in in our homes right he set everything right. in uh, in our neighborhoods but what really fascinates me is as much as blatty is showing us horror from from like the as from the perspective of the dutiful Christian. And yeah, I know the, the priest in there has his own conflicts and people have crisis of faith, but it's still coming at it from this perspective. Barker is the flip side of this. Barker yeah. is the other face of that said coin. Um, I, I think, I think he's showing us with the same amount of awe and reverence, the demonic yeah. that we're used to paying like, or people are used to paying in church. Awe is the word I would definitely use here, yeah. right? Um, th that has a very specific meaning that a lot of people miss, right? Well, when we say something is awesome, I, I mean, we think of like Ninja Turtles, right? Because they, yeah. they, they, the popularization of the word awesome has become, you know, so commonplace that we've, we've lost its meaning. For something to be awesome, it means it inspires you with awe. And the, the idea of awe itself is this kind of almost an out-of-body feeling, if you will, where people are just completely taken out of their their ability to fathom themselves in a, a place, in a space, right? Mm -hmm. it, there's this kind of elevation of self to to something beyond, like a confronting of the infinity or, or the infinite, um, you know, outside of the self. So in a religious context, right, a lot of religious interaction was, was built around trying to provoke a feeling of awe, awe of God, awe of his inf infinite being, right? When you go to a cathedral, you see Gothic architecture is supposed to fill you with this sense of wonder. It's so huge. It's so magnificent. It's so artistic. Uh, we're 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 taken up breathless right, right, right by by the presence and i think that barker is serving that same kind of reverence and i think that he innovates he on ideas regarding hell ideas regarding one's relationship to extreme vice right yeah. in the same way that dante alighieri was way back when with the divine comedy yeah, and I think in doing all of this, I feel like Barker really helped redefine horror. I mean, Stephen King called him the next great thing when, when his books of blood came out. Um, we, I mean, Barker really kind of set this, the stage for like what was coming next. I mean, he moved away from like the, the known horrors that we had been experiencing 
And I feel like he gave us something new and something very, very uncomfortable to look at, um, especially yeah. with the Hellbound Heart, which is the book that we're going to, it's going to be the number one source for our topic today, our, our look today. We're not looking at all of Barker's pantheon of work. We're, we're looking mainly at the Hellbound Heart. We are going to talk a little bit about the Hellraiser movies. Um, first, I think I want to get into the biography of Clive Barker and tell people a little bit about who he is. Um, do you want to tackle that? Herbert? Yeah, sure. Uh, Clive Barker was, was born in Liverpool, England in October of 1952. Happy belated birthday. Yeah, we we just missed the window on that. Yep. I'm sure he would have appreciated a shout out on our our super growing podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, he was a, he's a playwright, novelist, film director, visual artist. This guy has tackled so much in in or by way of art. Mm-hmm. Um, I think prolific in in some ways, especially in the way that he continues to grow his craft from a multimedia perspective. Like we mentioned Candyman in our, our summer movie. Candyman was, was one was, of his stories. Yeah, it was called The, uh, the Forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, Hellraiser, of course, is, is very well known, although admittedly he only had a hand in, in, I think, those first two or three movies before... He wrote and directed the first movie, and I think he was like just a consultant for like the second one, and then I think he dropped out after that. And, yeah, I believe that's that sounds correct. Yeah, he's produced video games, even. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, really contributed to a lot of different and very interesting horror projects. I think his first, uh, his first real breakout fiction was was the Books of Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also had. The Hellbound Heart, which is the novella we'll be talking about, the basis of the film Hellraiser. And for the re- if any of you are interested in the Books of Blood, which is where Candyman, can, uh, the Forbidden, can be found, um, Books of Blood are still sold. Uh, the first three volumes are sold as Books of Blood, and it just says one through three. In the United States. In the United clarify. States. Um, volume four is available in the United States, but it's called The Inhuman Condition. Volume five is sold as In the Flesh, and volume six is sold as Cabal. So they changed the titles up, but you can still get all six books of blood. He was also, um, to add a little bit of pedigree to this, uh, he was also uh, the executive producer for Gods and Monsters, um, which won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. So he's got some accolades behind him, too. And I think some of his fiction also has quite a bit of accolades, if if not uh, formally. I mean, critics absolutely love, love Clive Barker. Yeah, yeah. He's he's very very influential and he's very very well regarded. Yeah, um, he's such a distinct voice in fiction. But we are talking, like Trevor said, specifically about the Hellbound Heart today, um, which was Clive Barker's novella that was then turned into Hellraiser. So, um, Hell uh, Hellbound Heart is about a a pair of brothers. One of them is a naughty boy. Um, to say the least, <laughs> he is, he seduces his brother's wife right before they're to be married. So the actual line in the book goes something like this. It's like the difference between what Frank did to Julia and rape was her acquiescence. And that to me is such a, it's, it's like a thematic statement 
for this book because there is no differentiating between sexual pleasure and suffering and pain and the horror that these demons bring and that that hell brings. Yeah. This is so intertwined. Yeah. In the story. This I think the short the short form summary is is essentially there's a dude who is real into earthly pleasures who finds that there's no more space for him to go. So he looks up this this strange supernatural box that promises unearthly pleasures. He opens the box, he finds out there's a bunch of demons there, he's taken to hell, and the rest of the book is his effort to get back to Earth using the unwitting help of his brother's sadistic wife. Yeah. Um, man, what a gruesome story. Do you want to talk a little bit about the themes real quick? That I, I mean, sex is totally a theme. And, and also the, the kind of sinful nature of sex. It, it's really interesting how he delves into the sexual politics of this book because um, he presents it in such a light that there's, there's almost at least for for Barker and and the sense of these characters, right? There's almost no wholesomeness to their their interaction with one another. Everyone in this book is is kind of after their own pleasure, their their own um, desires. They're motivated entirely by their desires, and those desires are are quintessentially selfish. I think. So, I mean, is that a, is that is that his point, though? Do you think? Do you think he's really saying that sex and and pleasure and gratification is inherently selfish? I think so. And I I mean, that's that's kind of the reading that I get. I like when when it comes to his his delineation between sex and and pleasure and pain which this book features very prominently as as a story of excess, right? Like that's where the yeah. horror really derives, the the inability to discern for these characters and certainly for the the hellish minions that show up in the book between these two extremes, right? Like that's some of the idea that Barker's trying to dig into. Okay. I don't know, it, it's real I, creepy. Help me out. I, I think you're right. I mean, the most innocent character I think that was in there was not Frank, but his his brother's kind of kind of naive about the whole deal, isn't he? I mean, he's kind of innocent. I mean, Julie yeah. is definitely not innocent. What, she, was, what was the name of the brother in the the novella? Because they change it. Yeah, they change it in the movie. Really, it's like Rory in the book. Rory, yeah, I think it is Rory. And then they change it to Larry in the movie, right? Yeah, Larry's just a little less British, but we'll get into the movies. I don't think, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into the I movies here in a minute. I don't think Rory is an innocent character. I think that, I didn't say he was innocent. I said he was the most innocent. Yeah, the, maybe I mean, most innocent, the most but naive. still extraordinarily selfish. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Because if you look at each of the, because there are only four main characters. I mean, the, the cast of this novella is really quite small. There's Rory, the husband, yeah. who is a, a, a well-meaning but kind of stupid husband. Um, he's recently married to his wife, Julia. Mm-hmm. Julia is a, a sadomasochist. I mean, she's she's a, a, maybe just straight sadist. Yeah, she's 
she's real twisted. Yeah. She has no love for Rory. Rory want, like views her as a possession, right? Like, yeah. r- like Rory is really, she's the trophy wife. She's the trophy wife. He's yeah. only really interested in her. So, so much as, as how she makes him feel. Yeah. Julie is not interested in Rory because she feels like he's too timid or too weak or too, too uninteresting. I'm not really sure what Julia's beef with Rory is, or maybe it's just that Rory just kind of sees her as an object. But but she's well, attracted it could be he's, to. He's a bit vanilla too. Yeah, I mean. she's attracted to Frank. Frank's a total asshole. He literally rapes her on her wedding day, right? Yeah, or like right before she's the wedding dress is on the bed. Yeah, right. Yeah, he he rapes her right next to the wedding dress, and and she, in the moment, it's rape, but she she kind of turns it from not being rape in retrospect, which I think is really, really kind of crazy. But but yeah. I, you know, she, I don't. I think she turns whatever victimhood there into motivation for her sadism. Like she's really she's really quite messed up. Yeah, and then the girl. Um... Kirsten, Kristen, I think it's Kirsten. I know. So my nephew has a, has a girlfriend and I have a niece and one of them is named Kirsten and the other one's named Kristen. And Hey, if you're both listening, I'm sorry. I can never get your name straight. (laughs) One of you is one and one's the other. And just people quit naming your kids. K like K names. Just stop it. It's, it's tried out. It's, it's tired out. We got to retire the whole letter K. We have to. Yeah. And I say this with my wife's name being Carrie, which is, <laughs> and your wife's Kate. My, I mean, my wife's Kate. We're just, <laughs> <laughs> what's really funny is that for a long time there, there was an actual betting pool as to, as to what letter of the alphabet I was going to end up marrying. Cause I, I dated a string of M's. It was like almost exclusively <laughs> M names. Um, and so, and sometimes their initials were like MM, like it was, it got to be a whole thing. And it's not like I, I chose that on purpose or anything. It just kind of happened that way. And then I married a, a girl with a K name and I, I really shot to hell that, that pool. It lost, a lot of people lost a lot of money. So, I mean, maybe I should amend them. What I said, Rory is an innocent character, but actually I think Rory and I mean, he's not an innocent character, but he's more innocent than, or less selfish, I guess, than Julia and Frank. But same would go for, for Kirsten. And again, I, th- I think that Barker shows us that Kirsten isn't even all that innocent a character either, because she's constantly she, looking for a window to sleep with Rory. Yeah, she's, she's constantly looking that. for a way to sneak into this marriage. The best thing he ever did was making her... Larry's daughter in the movie. I think that provided it, a character that we removed, could actually review. Yeah, for. it removed the sexual tension well, that from sexual the tension. novel. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Be- between, but between those characters in the novella, and it, it made her. Oh, that's so. It was. Oh, that's that so gross. So bad. No. Come to daddy. Um, oh, it, no, it, that just skeeves me out so bad. I think it's meant to. I think it's meant to skeeve us out. Over on the the Sip and Smut podcast, whenever they actually release, they're, they're constantly talking about like the pet terms, and and every time I hear them talking about daddy, I just I cringe. Like I cr- I crawl up and die inside. So. I have been talking a lot about the objective correlative. Um, in fact, it's kind of been my running theme this whole season so far. So 
And if we all, you know, just another refresher, it's the T.S. Eliot thing. It's the outside that mirrors the in um, or the internal. This really, this idea really takes a literal kind of visceral meaning here. Oh I mean, gosh, it's, it's really so freaking, literal. this is gruesome. Like when she finds, when Julia finds Frank, like for the first time, because he's died and he's found his way back from hell, but he's not like a normal like he's not, hey, it's me. I'm okay. I'm Frank. Come to daddy. You he's know? like in pieces. He's he's in pieces. He's like he's been skinned. Um, his flesh has been torn asunder. He's like this this and not even a shell of a man, because it's really just his innards. Like the shell's yeah. been stripped away. And so he tasks her with um they discover by accident, both of them, that blood can actually kind of fill him up and bring him back to his whole kind of self. So she takes this this opportunity to like sleep with men and bring them back or like seduce yeah, men. Yeah, she doesn't she sleep with them. them. She brings them back. She brings them back to the house and then murders them. And then he like sops up their blood and gruesomeness and gore to like reanimate himself. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's very, very, yeah, it's, and, and Clyde Barker, while the, this the is pros, not reading for the squeamish. No, no. And while the prose can be really beautiful in this book, um, man, the imagery he does not hold back on that it's no. it's really really highly gruesome. effective um uh but yeah there's um <laughs> i mean the objective correlative i i mean you see you see externally all of this viscera right which i which i think taints the relationships between the characters because the characters are 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 just as tainted by all of this violence and all all of this um this you know insatiable lust or desire you know i think all of all of what we see viscerally played out on the page you know mirrors the the internal kind of viscera of these strong sinful emotions right right yeah it's it's very well done imagery to reinforce that idea of pleasure and pain being yeah. so intertwined um you know like they go hand in hand or I don't know, maybe chain in hand or like needle in hand, like pinhead. Like I know he's got the chains. He's got the, he's I, the I acupuncturist. See what you're going for. Yeah. He, yeah. He, I, I call him the acupuncturist because <laughs> every time when he shows up in the movie, I assigned a profession to all of the, the Cenobites in the movies. <laughs> and if like, you, if you've seen the movies, you know what I'm talking about. They're all like secondary medical specialists. Yeah. They, yeah. No, that's right. There's, there's the, the, um, what there's the there's the acupuncturist the acu acupuncturist there's the ophthalmologist the ophthalmologist the guy with the glasses right. there's the dentist he's the, the dentist. guy that like with the teeth the guy, yeah yeah his like his yeah. teeth or, or his mouth is just like like flayed open you, all you see here is like and then there's teeth. the lady with the hangers coming out of her head or whatever yeah I couldn't quite figure out what she was maybe your dry cleaner I I don't know <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Although a dry cleaner is not really a medical professional, but it's not a secondary med. Maybe maybe she's just the orderly. Maybe she is. Yeah, she's the she's the orderly or the nurse or the CNA or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, maybe I don't think we can. So the book and all its gruesomeness. There's, I think that's about almost everything we can say about it without really giving too much away. Um, I mean, it follows one, the movie, the first movie, really, really closely. Once more, we're really um, spoiling a book that's. 40 years old. 
I know. Well, we got to quit doing that, man. I mean, there are nobody's going to ever read anything we there, have to talk about. Well, it's like that one lady in the the mail said she didn't have to read anything as long as we talk about oh, it. Oh, that's true. You know what? You're welcome for our service. Yeah. So if you've seen Hellraiser, the first one, and they're remaking it, by the way. There actually, there's two. I've yeah, heard there's, there's I've a heard lot of controversy like, too. There's two remakes coming for it. Like one is, one is definitely through Hulu. That one's got the big controversy, and then one is, I want to say it's like HBO or Netflix. It's something like that. Is that right? I, don't, I think so. It's, yeah, but it's going to be like a series. I've not heard of two. I've heard that there is a, a remake con- coming, and and a lot of people are really upset about the casting of that. The, yeah, the, because the, the central, the, the priest character, the you know the the pinhead character. I, I hate calling char- him pinhead because I think it's such a, a dumb sounding name. Well, and Barker even says in later works that pinhead hates the nickname pinhead, <laughs> so he doesn't want to be called pinhead. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, pinhead. We will never call you pinhead again, pinhead. I I just feel like pinhead is. <laughs> I feel like that's an insult that you should reserve for someone you really hate. I mean, like Rudy Giuliani. He's literally got pins coming out of his head. Pinhead does, not Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I don't you know, know. Rudy I Giuliani be could have been. shocked about Rudy lately. <laughs> um, you know, I we've they, we've so dated this So people podcast are upset because yeah, we have. We really have. Um, people, people in are gonna 20, listen, they're yeah, going to discover it a hundred years from like, now. Why are they like, so are obsessed with a former governor of New York? <laughs> so people are upset because Pinhead is going to be played by a transgender actress, right? And I feel like I could go either way about this. I, you know, but Clyde not, Barker says in the book that these are genderless beings. Oh sure, I and, mean, and I don't think that's what what upsets me. I think I I think what what maybe upsets me, and the only reason why I might be upset about the casting, is simply that I think there's, I don't know, there, I think there's some weird po- sexual politics at play there. I don't want to villainize transgendered people and, and cast them as like these weird sexual villains you know sexual demons uh, because I, I think that's very unfair to the trans movement that is the only real reservation I have about the casting because otherwise I, I mean I don't know it, it's also kind of interesting or weird the sexual politics of the, the novel and, and the movies because Clive Barker himself is is homosexual you know and, and I think in some ways at, at he least he worked did you know as a male escort for a time I did not know that, like but he it, couldn't it, pay wouldn't, rent, he it was... wouldn't shock me, uh, to be honest, knowing so his fiction. So for me, that's exactly why I think like this transgender actress well, kind of works for this role, yeah, because and, and, it, it, it shows that even through the casting, they are involving this sexual tension, this sexual politics that are so well, and how much in of this, book. How much of this is, is also kind of leaning very heavily into this this idea of Christian allegory, of, of sex being you know, like one of the the great deadly sins. There's really nowhere, I think, that that uh, the Bible addresses sex as being a negative thing. I mean, he, there's there's conversations about uh, jealousy or or about um, uh, envy. You know, in in the Bible, there's you know the idea of lusting over someone else. But I think that's more. I, I forgive me, feminists who are listening to the podcast, but I think that's more about property ownership and property rights than it, it actually is about the the actual act of sex. Well, Leviticus, I think it's one of those Iticuses of the Old Testament goes into. How many into, Iticuses are in the 
I don't well, know. Te- I well, it's just Leviticus, It's right? probably just Leviticus. It's either Leviticus or Deuteronomy, which itself, just that name by itself kind of sounds dirty, doesn't it? Deuteronomy. I don't, um, I don't know. It kind of does. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've, but it's I've one spent of those... more time with this the scholarly you know <laughs> aspects of of but there, it's the about the laws that are handed down and right so there's this whole list of you shall not lay with or thou shalt not lay with you know so and so 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 i think in like contextually those all just boil down to property rights Property right. I'm, I'm going to go one step further because somebody else made this argument for me that I'd heard once. Um, property rights and uh, um, medical like health. Like, so for a long time, oh, yeah. like people were told in like that, that Old Testament thing, like, and I don't want to turn this into a Bible podcast, but um, that's for another podcast. I do want to turn this into a Bible podcast. <laughs> um, they, they were told for a long time, like they couldn't eat pork, but the main reason for that was because right. they didn't have the proper methods to sterilize the pork so that yeah. they could eat it without getting sick. Yeah, and I think that's what the purpose of, like, of a lot of the, Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, a hygienic rule behind a lot of these laws. Like you aren't prepared mm-hmm. for this. You are going to, if you do this, it's going to make like some, some issues and, so I feel like yeah. that's probably the basis for even some of those yeah. sexual laws. But but, like, but I think that you know to to Barker's credit, I mean he draws on on a lot of that as allegory yeah. for this story. You know because homosexuality in in most traditional Christian circles, even today, I mean forty years after he he wrote this novella, people are very unaccepting un- of homosexuality and they, and they depict it as one of the greatest of sins. I think the same goes for, you know, like transgender identity. Oh yeah. Um, in, in the church today there it's, you know, there are a lot of people who are very unaccepting of these things. And, and I think that, that turning something like the Kardashians union, are totally against it. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's sad. <laughs> So the first movie, we're talking about the remakes, but the first movie to come out was directed and written by Clive Barker. Um, right. And we, uh, he did it, I mean, it was pretty decent. I mean, it had some issues. Um, it's yeah, very dated. The acting is really quite bad. The acting is There's bad. There's a lot of weird soft lighting that I think really, like, he does not frame a whole lot of scenes very well. Um, and as a yeah. result, you know, there's just, there's the, kind of that light bloom on on a lot of those movies from that era um, that just speaks to me of, of, like, you don't know how to work a camera quite right. You, you don't know how to maintain the, the right kind of focus or whatever. I don't know. I'm getting real <laughs> nitpicky here, but I think visually speaking, it's not very... I mean, the special effects. The are special cool. effects are fantastic, but I think other than the special effects, the visuals of the movie are really quite amateur. So, in all fairness, neither Trevor or I saw. At least I, I don't know if you went and saw it after, but neither Trevor and I saw any Hellraiser movie after Hellraiser Two. No. Because we watched Hellraiser, and then we watched Hellraiser 2 so that we could talk about this. And my God, was that a fucking mess. Hellraiser 2 was absolute garbage. I couldn't tell what the fuck was going on with that story. It picks up, like, moments after, like, right after Hellraiser, the first one. Yeah. And 
Except it kind of doesn't because at the end of the first one, like the house burns down. And then it doesn't. And then it's it just there. And in the first one, they're in London. And then they're in, some, they're in yeah. some like American town or city. Like in the second it's one. It's so bizarre. I can't, I can't place them. I don't know where they're supposed to be in the I world. I don't think they knew where they were supposed to be. Like, it, I don't think they had a clue as to what was going on. Oh my gosh. This and then you have the mess. weird psychiatrist who's got like this 18th century, like mental hospital kind yeah. of thing going on. Yeah. But I don't, how did that guy <laughs> keep that hospital open? Because it, 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 like, very clearly, it's the 1980s, right? Yeah. Like, like we are, we are told through the film, it's the 1980s, and yet this guy is running around in like a 19th century psych ward. Yeah, it's like made of like concrete. People in like old, like it looks like a dungeon. It looks like something out of like Arkham Asylum. Like the people yeah. like like behind these like ironclad it's, doors, it's and they're just cartoonish. Oh man, it's yeah. bad. And then he decides he's going to cartoonish like, even for a for a movie about demons, sex demons from hell. Yeah, that would have been a better title for sex it. Sex demons from hell. Sex demons that's from the, hell. That's it. Believe it or not, that is the name of my porn tape. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word on that one. Um, <laughs> not even my wife will watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <the laughs> Point, it's probably because of the makeup. That's like a Rodney Dangerfield joke. Yeah. Like, my porn <laughs> tape's so bad, not even my, my wife will watch it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, God, Hellraiser two, what a freaking mess! And then uh, there's this like my favorite, my favorite scene in the whole movie is when they come up. What's the girl's name? The 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 puzzle girl who's who's like the one that doesn't genius. speak. Yeah, she's like a savant at puzzles. Yeah. And if you're writing a movie about demonic puzzle boxes, like, you have to have this a is, savant with this puzzles. This is how bad the movie is. The movie is so bad, I literally do not remember the name of the main character. Um, yeah, it was the girl, right? I mean, it was yeah. the girl from the first one. It's Christy. No, it's no, because it's Kirsty, Christy, or whatever is is the main character. But yeah, then yeah. there's the the other puzzle girl who's like who becomes the main character of the story because of her weird like oh yeah knowledge yeah. of puzzles. Yeah, and then the, the so the psychiatrist ends up bringing back Julia, who's in the same state Frank was right. in the first film. Right. But my favorite scene is when the the psychiatrist is showing Kirsty around his facility, and yeah. like, and she's just like she's cool with it. She's just like, yeah, this hot doctor wants to show me his his mental institute, <laughs> and and they show her the the girl, and they're like, oh, this is. Uh, blah blah she, or they're like this girl you know she doesn't speak she's really into puzzles and they're like uh, she, we don't know her, her name you know we call her blank and then <laughs> Kirsty follows up and she says but what's her real name and like like they just he just explained to you he doesn't know that girl's name number one <laughs> but number two like you're like what's her real name whatever <laughs> they named her like <laughs> I, I don't I it's just such a stupid it's it's a like in a nutshell it is quintessentially why this movie doesn't work it's so stupid <laughs> well then they give her they give this the savant puzzle girl the Lamarchand box to solve to bring the Cinnabites right yeah and, and here's the thing talk Julia, about a Chekhov's gun you see the girl and she's like I'm real Julia good at puzzles so I wonder what's gonna happen there here's the deal Julia here's what doesn't make sense to me Julia knows 
what the Cenobites are. She's seen them. She's seen them come, right? They got her in the last movie. So she's escaped. She's I, in the same predicament man, as Frank said, is. I, she's seen them come, and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I got... I got... I was like, wait, what, did I miss that seed? <laughs> I was confusing it for my sex tape. That was, that was the sex tape was. version. That, that was, was the, the porn version, version of... of uh, I watched the wrong version. <laughs> I should have known not to try to stream Hellraiser 2 from from Pornhub. <laughs> that should have been my first my first indication that maybe maybe it was the wrong bootleg. The Cenobites are coming. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't waste your time we with that. We are really <laughs> earning that explicit tag this week. I think we are. I think I, I, I'm shooting for it. Ding! <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, don't our our basically folks don't watch Hellraiser two. I don't know about or, this new Hulu version. I hope it's going to be good. I'm not bothered by the. I I I think this will be an interesting choice. Um, but then again, it is Hulu, so they have hits and misses. Um, yeah. I don't know. I I I I want to like it. I like the first one. I liked. I love the I novella. The first one was really fun. If I, you can I stomach it, read the novella. The novella is so good. The prose though. is very beautiful in there. As it, disturbing and as disgusting as the imagery is, his prose does, is terrific. It does everything I think horror should do. You know, whether whether you want to look at this as some kind of allegory about the the villainization of sex and 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 the villainization of of you know homosexuality or, or or the you know kind of the the prominence of homophobia or just conservative ideas of sex or if you just want to read it straight as a scary novella about some fucked up stuff this is it's great it's yeah. so good it it was it's honestly one of the my favorite books that I've read this year yes mine too mine too um and so hopefully we've convinced some of you to go out and maybe pick it up and check out Clive Barker. Don't shy away from him. He's, he's gruesome, but he's a really good writer. Yeah. Um, so uh, thank, we want to thank everybody for listening today. We've got uh, some more stuff coming up. We're going to have a special Halloween episode coming up. Um, I think we're going to try and get that one out on Halloween, so you might get a couple episodes this week. Um, and uh, you know where we're at on social media. We keep telling you every week. Uh, we've got our Patreon. Thank you to all our Patreon subscribers. We've got a few Patreon subscribers now. It's amazing. Um, not many, but a few. So we do appreciate all of you. Um, and we uh, have, you know, the Buy Me a Coffee, and you guys are following us on Twitter and our different iterations and on Instagram and Reddit and TikTok. Yeah. So we really appreciate all of you. We've got the anthology coming together right now. Um, and we're uh, we're just really excited about everything that's happening with Slayhouse and and how it's progressing. And so we want to say to everyone who's involved with it, and to everybody who is supporting it, um, thank you all very very much. Thank you to our 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 producers at Wayne Howard Studios. Um, they are terrific. They are above board. They are top notch guys. Really professional, and we really do appreciate everything they've done for us. Um, so really just thank you. I, yeah. I, I feel like I can speak for all of us when I say the best is yet to come. Like, yeah, no we're pun intended. A, we're having a blast. And uh, unlike the Cenobites, the best is yet to come. <laughs> would you say that they're the worst to come? The, yeah. Well, I don't, right. I, don't, I don't know. I never watched them come. So I'm going to walk outside before I make another joke about sperm. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>